before we go to the word, let's take some time to pray. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Lord, I pray for um, our nation even now. Lord, in this, this short week, we have seen the heights of human triumph as, as SpaceX launched the first commercial flight to the International Space Station, and every single thing in that whole mission has gone without error. It's been right on the money all the way down the line, the, the height of human achievements. And then, Lord, to see what's happening here on Earth with the riots that are happening throughout different cities because of the grave injustice that George Floyd suffered. Lord, uh, it reminds us that humanity made in your image, fallen in the image of Adam. Lord, we are capable of great achievements and great evil. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the Micah's um, reflection on what you require of us would reside in our hearts, Lord, that we would do justice, that we would love kindness, and Lord, that we would walk humbly before you. And Father, I pray that your church would exhibit that in reference to all that's been happening, um, that we would love justice, walk uh, in humility and love kindness, Lord, and, and display that. And Father, even in, in Minneapolis, um, there was a, a prayer meeting on the Hennepin Bridge that uh, didn't get widely reported in the media, but it was, the bridge was filled with people humbly confessing their sin and praying to you. And Lord, I, I pray that your church would continue to exhibit that kind of humility in the midst of the chaos. And so Father, would you restore uh, some semblance of order in our nation, but Lord, not at the expense of justice. Um, we want both. We want peace and, and order, but we also want uh, just uh, laws to be applied appropriately. And so, Father, would you protect our citizens? Um, Lord, would you help our police forces police themselves and apply the law justly? And so, Father, grant us peace, we pray. And Father, I want to pray for my brother Ron LaFoon. I thank you that he's out of the hospital and back in uh, assisted care. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, Rachel reports his uh, strength is gaining on a daily basis. Lord, we pray that you would restore him to his home um, get him back on his feet so he can uh, care for himself. And uh, Lord, that we would be able to enjoy our time with him again. And we pray for our sister, Rachel, that Lord, you would give her, um, we thank you for the peace that you've given her. And we pray that you would continue to multiply wisdom to her. And uh, Lord, that we as a church family in this socially distant environment we're in would find ways to support and uh, encourage her. So Lord, um, help us with uh, the mess that this world is in even now. And Lord, uh, as we turn to your word, Lord, this is still the difficult part of Romans, the hard news to hear. But Lord, it is important for us to understand who we are. So Lord, would you be with us now as we study your word? Uh, show yourself to be glorious. Remind us of what it means for us to walk humbly before you. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, just a reminder of what's going on in the book of Romans. Uh, my theory on why Paul wrote Romans is because he has finished his mission in the Mediterranean basin, uh, or all those countries around the Mediterranean, and he's about to cross the Mediterranean and head into Spain. And as he's preparing to go to Spain, he's come to the realization that Antioch in Syria is just too far away to have as a home church. So he's writing to the Romans, who he hasn't met yet. This is before the end of the book of Acts when he's in prison there. 
and he is explaining to them, this is my gospel, and this is what I believe, and this is what I'll be preaching, and, and can we partner? And so I think that's what he's doing is he's trying to recruit Rome to be his home church going forward. Uh, so that's kind of the reason that he wrote it. And he, what he's doing is essentially is in this wonderful book, in this lengthy exposition, he is laying out his gospel. He is laying out for us the good news of, um, of Jesus Christ as he is intending to preach it to the Gentiles. And so his encapsulating statement, his summary of his gospel is verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so that's kind of my thought for the outline of the book. It is salvation. Um, and that's what portion we're in now is what is salvation? Who, what are we being saved from? Who needs salvation? To whom is salvation available? And so he's really dealing with this question currently. It's salvation to everyone, um, not to the good, not to the right, not to the pure hearted, not to the rich, uh, not to the Jews. It's to everyone. Uh, salvation is available to everyone in Jesus Christ. And then how do we achieve that salvation? How do we get there? It's available to everyone who believes. And so that's his, his thesis. That's what he's working on. So where we're at now in chapter two is we're still dealing with that need for salvation, that, that requirement that we come to be saved. And you remember his line of thought. He's, he's following this trajectory of thought. At the beginning, he said that God had made himself known to everybody. That, that through what is created, everybody could see who God is. They could see his, his uh, eternal power and his divine nature. It's, it's clearly perceived. But the Gentiles turned away from that. Uh, they didn't want that. And once you reject that major portion of what reality is, uh, your thoughts become futile. You can't process the world properly if you've removed from it the foundational principle of it. If you don't receive that, your thoughts become futile. So that as their thoughts become confused, the next thing that happens is their heart gets upset um, because human beings are built to worship. We are made to worship. And so when you remove God from that equation or the true and the living God, what you'll do is you'll find something else to plug in there. You don't just stop worshiping. And so what Paul says is they worshiped uh, images in the form of men and animals and creatures and anything. Um, they didn't stop worshiping. They worshiped something wrong. And once your mind is clouded and your heart's desires are upside down, the result is your practice is wrong. You're, you're, you'll do this long list of sins. And that's what uh, Paul had done um, at the uh, beginning of chapter two there. He went through and kind of, oh, I'm sorry, through this list of sins that people are guilty of. And it's because their loves, their desires are disordered. They're upside down because God's not at the top. And so that's where he left us. And that section, um, when we started chapter two, um, he was talking about having no excuse that, uh, you know, people who judge that there are people who are morally upright and would look on some of the sins that are in that list and just, oh, how could anybody do that? And so what Paul did there is he turned the tables on those folks and said, well, wait a minute, um, who do you think you are to look on and judge that? And aren't you guilty of those things? And so remember the section that, that uh, ended chapter 2, verse um, uh, 9, 10, and 11 there is how he ended his thought. He said, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So who does evil? The Jew and the Greek. In other words, everybody. Um, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
So that's how that section ended is him saying, God shows no partiality. God is not partial to Jew or Greek or any of that. He's going to judge everybody fairly. And so now we come to verse 12 and he's asking this question. Um, he's anticipating his hearers asking the question, well, wait a minute, how can God not be partial if uh, he's going to judge people by the law and he never gave the law to the Gentiles? How is that not partial? Isn't that something that, that is wrong, that he would tell the Jews but not the Gentiles and then hold them to account? So really this section is Paul anticipating that, stand, that question, by what standard are they going to be judged? Uh, who says how they're going to be judged? How is that determined? If the, if the Jews, if the uh, Gentiles don't have the law, how is that going to happen? So what he says is those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So that's his, his answer is, wait a minute, <laughs> who said they don't have the law? Um, and we need to pause here for just a moment and deal with Paul's use of the word law, because it's a little complicated. It tends to shift a little bit, but I think there's a, a, a kind of a, a principle that we can approach it with. Uh, so law is the word nomos. Uh, if you've ever heard the term antinomian, it's somebody who believes that the Christian has no law, they can do whatever they want. Uh, that's anti, against, or none, and nomos, law. That's where that comes from. So when Paul uses the term law, the reason that people might come up with an antinomian ex explanation is because it's complicated how he uses it. And it's even complicated right here in this very sentence, or in this very uh, paragraph, because he says, those who have sinned without the law will perish under the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. So that apparently is speaking of the law of Moses. Uh, that's what we went through when we went through Exodus, as we talked about the law. That's what Moses wrote down and said, this is what you have to do. Um, those who have sinned apart from the law will be condemned apart from that law. But those who are under that law, they'll be judged according to that law. So there is an acknowledgement that there is a degree of revelation here. Um, so it, when Paul uses the word law, most often he is speaking of the law of Moses, though not exclusively. And you can kind of see that here because he says the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires. So they don't have the law, that's Moses, but they do what the law requires. They're a law unto themselves. Uh, now, does that mean that they set up a separate law that's a, you know, a distant from the Mosaic law? No, that means something else. Law in that case then becomes not the encoded Mosaic law, but a principle. Uh, a rule, a, a morality that people have in their hearts. And we'll unpack that a little bit as we go. Uh, so when we're talking about law, I'll try to keep it clear which use of the word that Paul seems to be indicating. Um, like I said, by default, you can usually assume it's the law of Moses, but not always. And so we'll, we'll try to be careful with that. So he, he started out by saying those who've sinned without the law of Moses will be condemned without the law of Moses. And those who sinned under the law of Moses will be judged by that. And why is that? He says, because it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. So what he's, he's laying out here is it's not sufficient for the Jews to have heard and to receive the law and just hold it and say, well, you know, we're, we're fortunate, we're blessed because Moses revealed to us God's will. He says, that's not sufficient just to have it. Um, those are not the ones who will be justified. It's the ones who will do the law, who will obey it, that will be justified. Now, we're, we're not really to the issue of justification yet, 
Um, it sounds like, well, if I work real hard and I obey all the laws, I'll be justified. But that's not what justified means. So we'll set that aside for right now because Paul will begin to unpack how is it that we're justified. But for right now, he's just talking about the application of the law. By what standard will we be judged? Um, so it, it says that when the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature what the law requires, they're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. So how is that possible? What's he talking about there? Well, when he says who do not have the law um, and they do what is in the law, then they are a law to themselves. So uh, a Gentile who's never heard of Moses, never read the Old Testament, never seen uh, the book of Leviticus, um, he will occasionally do things that are in harmony with the law. He will occasionally line up with what the law is demanding. And this is one of those areas where we have to be careful what we mean here. Um, in the law of Moses, if you get a skin disease, you have to go to a priest and show him the skin disease. And then you have to go be away from the village for seven days. You can't go anywhere near your people. And then at the end of seven days, you come back and show the priest. And if it healed, then what you do is you take a bowl and you take two doves and you take some scarlet yarn and some hyssop. And you go to a stream where there's running water. And the first dove, you break its neck and you rip its head off and you pour the blood in the bowl. And then you take the second dove and you roll it in the blood and you set it free. And then over that water, you take the, the hyssop and the yarn and you sprinkle blood. Um, is a Gentile going to suddenly go, oh, wait, I have a boil and it's cleared up. So let me go grab a couple of birds and head to the, the stream. I don't think that's the specificity that, that uh, Paul is getting at here, that they would do that. Uh, this is where theologians refer to the law of Moses, and they talk about different categories of laws. And some people chafe at that. They don't like it because it's not biblical that it's broken up that way. Um, I think there's a case for it, though. What Paul's talking about here is not those ceremonies that, that people perform. Um, he's not talking about uh, what kind of animal that the, the Gentile would suddenly feel they need to go sacrifice uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. I think what he's talking about here is that underlying moral principle of the law, the moral aspects of the law. So if a Gentile is uh, confronted with somebody and decides not to kill them, they're, they're agreeing with the law and saying, well, I, I know that killing is wrong. And, and though it would be easy to do now and it would help my problem, I'm going to not do that. So that's what he's talking about is not the, the, the ceremonial portions of the law, but the moral center, the moral core of the law. And so that might help us when we're understanding Paul's use of the term law is it could be those ceremonies. But most often, I think what he's talking about is the, the underlying moral principle that's expressed in Moses' law, um, that, it, that it comes from that. And where we get that is down in verse 20, which we'll come to in a bit. It says that they have the law, they have in the law, that's the Jews, have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And that word embodiment in ESV is really, the root of that is the word morphe. And morphe means the shape, the outward form of it. So what I think he's getting at here is, is the law is not the exhaustive nature of morality, but it is a codified, written down expression of it. It has the shape, the form of it. But at its heart, there's more to it. There is, there is a moral code, a moral law. And so when he talks about law, I think Paul as a Jew is thinking, that's expressed in the Mosaic law, but there is a, a huge principle of morality in that. So when, they, when the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature what the law requires, occasionally they'll bump into it and they'll do the right thing. 
Um, it says that they're, they're, um, they do these things by nature. And that's a theme that Paul has brought up before is this idea of nature. And what he's getting at here is there's something about human, the, the human being, the, the way we're built, the way we're made, there is within us a, a moral core to us. We have a, an inward morality, um, and that's natural to us. That's by nature built into us. Um, so he has talked before, like in, in chapter 1, verse 32, he says, they know God's righteous decree, speaking of the Gentiles, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that there are things that, that are not right, that death comes because these things happen. Um, or in verse 26, he says, women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. There is a way that nature expresses humanity that, that has at its heart this moral core, which says this is right and this is wrong. Um, so, for example, um, I, I think I've told you before, when I was in Burma, um, I had a, a, a Sunday school teacher say, ask me about what Jesus did when he was, uh, before he started his public ministry. So after he appeared in the temple at 13, but before he started his public ministry at 30, what did Jesus do? And I was just like, how do I know? It's not in the Bible. And so what I did is I said, well, why would you ask that question? Why, why is that important to you? And they said, well, because here in Burma, where uh, Buddhism is, is really big, there's a story that uh, Jesus came to Burma, was brought to Burma, and he studied under Buddha and learned Buddhism and brought that back. And I said, and he said, well, the reason that people think that is because the seven laws in Buddhism sound very much like seven of the Ten Commandments. And so we think maybe Jesus got that, or they think maybe Jesus got that. And we don't know how to answer that because we don't know what he did. So I said, well, here's what I think. I think that Jesus didn't get that from Buddha. I think Buddha got that from Jesus. And he was like, what? And I, was like, I don't think Jesus ever came to Burma. I think what's going on here is, is uh, Siddhartha went and sat under the tree in the forest and thought about what's right and what's wrong. And when he came out, he was enlightened. He became the Buddha, and he had these principles, these moral principles. Well, according to the Bible, God wrote them on his heart. So he just took the time to sit and reflect and clear his thoughts and say, well, what's right and what's wrong? And he came up with these seven principles. So I think he got them from Jesus. I don't think Jesus got them from him. And this is what, this is what I was referring to. This is what's going on, is there is this moral core to us where we know things are right and we know things are wrong. And so we, we, by nature, will occasionally do those things. Um, there was a story a seminary professor of mine told. He had a friend who was teaching philosophy at college, and he had this, this guy had this one student who was just brilliant. You could tell this guy was going to go on to do great and wonderful things. But he had really bought into the postmodern idea that, well, all truth is relative, and there's really no right or wrong, absolutely, you know. So um, there's a, a joke rule on the internet that the longer a conversation goes, eventually it will resort to Nazis. Somebody will be called a Nazi. And so that's kind of what happened in this case is the professor was arguing with the guy that there are more rights and wrongs. And the guy said, no, no, there can't be. And he said, well, are you telling me that the Nazis were right to kill Jews? And he said, well, you know, who am I to judge? Um, you know, they, they did what they thought was correct. And I may not like it, but, you know, they did what they believed was correct. And so this philosophy professor was just like really 
in knots about this guy because he was such a good philosopher, but he bought this line of malarkey about no, no morality. So the last day of class, the, the, they have an in-class test. They have to write this exam. And so the kid writes this exam and the professor looks at it. He's like, man, this is the best. This guy nailed it. Big red mark on their F, failed him. And so the, guy, the kid came into the professor's classroom or the professor's office, livid, just angry. I demand to know why I failed this course. I nailed every single thing on here. I got everything right. The professor said, well, at the last minute, I decided if you didn't turn it in in green ink, you failed. And the kid came unglued. I'm going to the dean. I'm going to the school. You can't fail me for this. And so the guy looked at him and he said, so you're saying it would be wrong for me to change my standards like that? Yeah, that's absolutely wrong. I can't believe you did that. So then there is an absolute right and wrong, dependent, not depending on how I feel. And the kid just kind of shut up and he goes, you got an A, you killed it. But you've got to believe that there are more rights and wrongs. That is not just a philosophical argument. That's arguing from human nature. We know that things are right and things are wrong. So for example, if you look at what happened in, in uh, Minneapolis with George Floyd, there is tremendous outrage from people, both Christians and non-Christians, people who are of other religions, people of no religion. There is a, an equal across the board outrage at what happened to him because we know it's built into us, it's wrong to murder people. And to kneel on a man's neck and to hold him on his side and, and have him complain that he can't breathe, there is a moral outrage that raises up in all of us. We know that's wrong. We don't have to have a law in the books of Minneapolis that says thou shalt not kneel on somebody's neck. You know that's wrong. And that's where the outrage is coming from, is, is that idea that we have by nature, we do what's in accordance with the law. Sometimes we don't, but we sometimes do. So this is what Paul is saying here. When it comes to the Gentiles, there's not a question of, is it fair to judge them because God didn't give them law? Just like the idea that they, they're worshiping false things because they've rejected the true God, God's made it available in nature. He, he's shown himself in nature. Now Paul is just saying more of that same thing. The way God has shown his, etern his, his eternal power and his divine nature in what is created is not just in rocks and stars and mountains and valleys and oceans and, and planets and those kind of things. It is there, but even still, it's also in the moralities that he's placed in our hearts. That's how we know that there is a God is because he's given us his law in his heart. And so this is the problem here is these Gentiles who don't have the written code do have on their heart, the work of the law on their heart, enough of the law to convict them that they're doing right or they're doing wrong. Now, um, one small warning here, one little caveat. What we have to be careful to not confuse is what is natural with what is cultural. Um, we can sometimes, because we live in a culture, we just imbibe it so much, we assume that this is the way it must be. Is, this is just the right way to do things. And we have to stop and say, well, that's our cultural expression of it, but there might be something underneath it. So back to Burma. Last time I was in Burma, um, went to a restaurant when we first got there. And as we were leaving and heading to the hotel, um, a man came up next to me. He was wearing a skirt. He had a purse over his shoulder and he put his arm not around my shoulders, but around my hip. And we walked on down the street talking like that. Um, and 
cultural sense in America, that would be perceived as something that is not normally done. That would be like um, the homosexuality or the cross-dressing or something like that. But in the Burmese context, that couldn't have been more manly. That couldn't have been more masculine. Men wear these long skirts. Since they're wearing skirts, they don't have a pocket, so they have this bag they put over their shoulder. It looks like a purse to us. And the hand on the hip, is that really, um, is that really something that's so endemic to us, that's so built into us, that it, it, it's just a cultural expression? So when we're looking at these things, we need to make sure we don't confuse our culture with the moral principle underneath. How is it expressed in a different culture? Um, might have different things, but there, there's a difference between culture and nature, okay? So just wanna be careful with that. So the next thing that Paul says in that line is, they are a law unto themselves. Um, does that mean then they decide what's right and what's wrong? They can just make it up as they go and, and it's all, you know, based on, you know, what they feel at the time. Um, not, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. He's, this is where law gets a little more complicated again. They're a law unto themselves in that they don't have Moses clearly articulating, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie. They don't have Moses saying that. They have that in their conscience. And so as their conscience approaches those things and says, man, I know I shouldn't lie because it's wrong and I wouldn't want somebody to lie to me. Um, it's really what's most expedient in this course. So I'm going to go ahead and, and, and lie. And then they feel guilty the rest of the day because they know they shouldn't have done that. That's what it means is, is their conscience, their, their sense of what's right and what's wrong is now being applied to them. And so that is that moral standard that comes out, and it's based on what God has written, the work of God's law in our hearts. It's, it's kind of on that. They, they may have slightly different moral principles. They, they might argue about some of them, but at their heart, they know that's what's going on. So that's what he means by they are a law unto themselves. And then he goes on, he says, um, um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he goes on and he, he talks about, um, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. So that's that idea of I have this conviction in my heart and I'm either going to go with it and suffer the consequences or I'm going to violate it and then feel bad about it. Um, what's going on there is the conscience is what is applying this to us. And so we have a conscience and it takes quite a bit of work for people to deaden that conscience, to burn it out to the point where they can go and do evil and not bat an eye at it. It just is kind of like no big deal. But Martin Luther, the, the reformer, when he was taken up by the church and told, they laid his books out before him, they put them all out, they said, this is what you've written, this is what the church is condemning, will you recant, will you take back these words? And that's, that's at the famous, what's called the Diet of Worms. And here's the end of Martin Luther's response. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. So what he said was, I have informed my conscience by the word of God. And now my conscience is telling me to recant of the things that I have written would be wrong. It is neither wise nor safe to go against conscience. And so, no, I will not. So the conscience can have a very important role, and we'll see in the next section why it's important to inform that conscience, why we have to fill that in. 
so that our conscience, when it accuses or excuses us, it's in line with what God is explaining, uh, what God's desire is. So they, um, they show the work of the law is written in their hearts, and, um, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. And then here's the punch. Here's the thing that really gets to it. He, verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a lot packed into that. So their, their thoughts either excuse them or accuse them, but it does it on that day. So on the day when they are judged, it's not that the Lord will just look at their external actions and say, well, this is the judgment. He will do that. But it also goes further. Uh, they will, their thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when they're judged. So their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own desires will be judged on that day as well. And then I think it's really important to remember that according to my gospel, remember Paul is explaining to the Romans, this is the gospel that I intend to preach. Part of the gospel is judgment. That is part of the message that Paul is preaching is there is a day coming when judgment will happen. So according to my gospel, Jesus is going to judge people. The, the thoughts of men, the secret inward things will be judged by Jesus Christ. That's not good news. So how is that gospel? Well, we'll get to how that's gospel when we get to the good news. Right now, we're getting ourselves lost before we get saved. So that's where he goes with that. How are the Gentiles judged? They are judged by the amount of light they have been given, which in the Gentiles' case is the moral code written on their law, the, the, the morality that they have that they know is right and what's wrong. So that's how they're, they're going to be judged. Well, he said in uh, verse 9, it's to the Jew first, but also to the, the Greek. So what do we do with the Jews then? And so here's where he goes to the Jews. He, he turns to the Jews. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. So you Jews, you're, you're, you call yourself a Jew and you say, look, I am sticking to the law. Jesus or God has revealed the law to Moses. And boy, I know that's what makes God most happy. And so I'm going to stick with that. That's where I'm going to go. And he says, if, if you appeal to that and you approve what's excellent, you, you look at things and you say, this is right and this is wrong. That's an excellent thing to do. That's a horrible thing to do. And, and you approve those. You go, I don't, I'm not telling people they should sin more. I want more people to be right. Um, because you're instructed from the law. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. So because you have uh, received the law, because you have God's moral compass expressed, not just in your heart, but also on paper, you are a guide to the blind. They can't see. So you can come and you can tell them, don't do that because that's wrong. Do do this because this is right. You're a light to those who are in darkness. It's a similar thing. Is they're, they're not just blind, they're in darkness. They can't possibly see correctly. An instructor to the foolish. Um, Boy, that's a loaded one, because when you study fools in the Bible, the fool is the one who says, I don't need wisdom. So you, you think you're so good, you're so right, that you're going to instruct fools? You're going to tell people who don't want to know the, the, the right way? You're going to explain to them? You're going to be the one that, that leads them out of foolishness? Or a teacher of children? Um, this is not a condemnation of children's ministry. This is using children as an illustration of those who really don't understand. So this is how you consider yourself. You're, you've got all of those things going. You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So we mentioned that earlier. You have in the law 
an embodiment of the knowledge and the truth. That, that's how God has expressed it in that way is through the law. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? There's a real warning there to think, well, I've got it all figured out. I've gotten to this level and now I don't need to listen to it anymore. Now I can tell other people because I've arrived. Is When you're doing that, you need to listen to it yourself. You need to check yourself in that as well. While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So those first two are pretty clear. You, you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, you preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? I, I think that's getting at Matthew chapter 5, uh, that idea that external compliance with the law is not sufficient. The heart is where the issue is. So you can externally not steal. But if you're coveting so much, if you're desiring what somebody else has, you could be guilty of stealing. Or you could never commit adultery. But if you're looking at women or men in lustful and desirous ways, and, and your, your wicked heart is just churning up all these wonderful thoughts of what you would do with that person, you've committed adultery. The heart is what's at stake. You who abhor idols, you, you walk through downtown Athens and you see these idols and you tisk and you roll your, your eyes. It says, do you rob temples? Nobody was really sure what Paul meant by that. Um, maybe that's a euphemism for idolatry. Um, you steal the ideas of the temples or something. I think what he's getting at, if we follow the trajectory, is you abhor idols, but you still worship idols. You still do those kinds of things. So what he's warning the, the instructors there, these people who are going to be um, the judges and, and the, the teachers of the law, is he's like, you know, it's not simply external obedience that counts. Where is your heart in this? What's going on in your heart? If you preach against these things, do you commit them in your heart? You say you can't commit adultery. Are you committing adultery? You who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. What he's painting for us there is it's a very high standard to not break the law. And, and Paul, was a, he admitted he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was at the top of the heap. He had done all of those things. And yet he, he couldn't keep it. Once he recognized what was going on, once he recognized who Jesus was, he could look at himself and go, that's all rubbish. It's all garbage. I, I didn't do a thing in any of that. And what he's warning us here is what he's been warning us all the way through this is it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what is going on in your heart. That's why he said, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Not the secrets of Gentiles, but the secrets of men, the secrets of human beings. So that's, that's where it gets to what's going on in your heart. What's happening in your heart? Will you, are, are you preaching against one thing and living in a way that's indulging in it? Um, so how do, we, how do we guard against this? How do we make sure that, um, we, we don't approve of sin, because that's what he had said earlier, that not only do they sin, but they approve of those who do it. Um, how do we avoid that? How can we fight against that? Um, the, the human heart is broken. It, it's disrupted. It's upside down. Um, what is our, 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 what, how can we avoid this judgment that's being said here? Well, we haven't got to the fullness of the gospel yet, but what we need to do is to make sure that we honestly assess ourselves. Um, to not think that because we have been given more revelation, because we've been given not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, therefore, we've arrived. It's, it's actually a scary thing if you think about it, 
to say, well, I have more revelation and therefore um, I will keep it all. Well, no, this is what he's saying is, no, you won't keep it all. And, and if there's anything that he's warned us in this section about is that the question comes up again, by what standard? Well, the Gentiles will be condemned without the law. They, they will be condemned. The word there is a polyon. It has to do with destruction. It's a, the, this eternal destruction that they'll suffer. They will be judged apart from the law based on what? Based on the morality that they have. But what about you? Well, you have this full revelation and you're not keeping it. How much worse will it be for you? What, what greater judgment will you suffer if you've been given all of this and you don't do it and you know it and you still don't do it? That's a terrifying place to be. It's, it's almost more scary to be where we are, to have the revelation we have and to know that at times we agree and we disagree with it. We do it and we don't do it. So how do we get out of this mess? I can't just leave us here and go, let's pray. Um, I, I think there is hope in this. Uh, he's warning us to, to check our hearts, to, to look into our hearts and to see over and over again what's going on. So just like Martin Luther said, um, my conscience is informed by the word of God and I can't go against it. Um, this, he's, where Luther is getting that from is, is we have something great that has been given to us. Um, we have more revelation. So we don't have just the first five books of the Bible. We don't have just the Old Testament. We have the full revelation of God, the entire Bible. That's a plus, as long as we're not deceiving ourselves with it and thinking, got it all figured out. I've arrived. I'm good. So we can understand more clearly God's standard. We can adhere to that more. But he's done more than that for us. He's given us much more. What we need to do is to inform our conscience by studying the scriptures, by going back to the word over and over again, because our hearts will slide and drift and, and forget things or ignore things. So we need to be going back to the word and being formed and formed and formed to remind us of what God expects for us. Um, what does God want from us? Well, he wants us to, um, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Um, we don't naturally stumble into those things. So that's one thing is the revelation can help us with that. The other thing is great news, is wonderful, great news. He's given us his spirit. So he didn't just give us more law. He didn't say, well, you know, there was law in the Old Testament. That's not enough. Let me give you some more law and then you'll get it figured out. Instead, he gives us his spirit. So in John 16, verse, starting at verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and the righteousness, or the, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So part of the role of the Spirit, which he sends to us, is not just to convict those folks out there of sin and righteousness and judgment. We're part of the world. We're still in the world. And so he convicts us as well. So the Holy Spirit is working in us to convict us of those things. And then Paul, or John also records Jesus saying, but the helper, this is a couple of chapters earlier, when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. So that, that conscience that's wrestling with those things, um, if we haven't seared it, if we haven't ignored it, if we haven't ignored it so much that it's developed a callus over it, but it's still soft and tender, the Holy Spirit can bring those things to our mind and convict us. So maybe at the moment we might not obey that, that, that feeling, but afterward, 
we might have that feeling within us saying that was wrong. And then remember the next time, oh, you know, the temptation is to tell that lie, but man, I felt like garbage the rest of the day. I'm not going to do that. It's not worth it. That's the Holy Spirit working in you to bring to remembrance all that he said, all of those role, all of those uh, things that he wants us to do. The Holy Spirit is working not just to generate faith in us, but also to bring about those, those righteous deeds because we will be judged based on what we've done. That's, that's the thing is Jesus in that day, um, according to Paul's gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And the secrets are not just secret thoughts, but secret deeds. Um, those things that we wouldn't want anybody else to ever see us do, they get brought out too, including the good, the good and the bad, both, both arrive there. So we don't get more law. What we get is more spirit. And spirit is tied into that law. So one of the warnings is we, you can't totally trust your conscience. Remember, for the Gentiles, it will either accuse or defend them. It goes back and forth. It's kind of flaky. That's why Jeremiah in chapter 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But that's not the end of it. That's the part we memorize. Keep going. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I search the mind to give according to the fruit of the deeds. So what we have is we have given to us not just more law, but a clarification on the law. And then above that, we have the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the scriptures, to apply the scriptures, to work in our hearts, as long as we're not buffing against him and developing a callus over that place that we're supposed to be sensitive, that place where we should feel the guilt when we're about to do something or considering doing something that we know we shouldn't. So that's the, the danger is you can, you can burn that out and get to the point where you just ignore it. You don't even bother with it. But that's not the call for us. So by what standard will, be, will we be judged? We will be judged by the amount of light we have been given. And that doesn't mean that somebody who has never heard of Jesus or the Bible or Christianity or any of that will get off scot-free. They have been given a bunch of light, haven't they? Isn't that what he's been saying so far? In nature, they could see who God is, and they chose not to worship him. In their hearts, they know what's right and what's wrong, but it doesn't always line up with their actions. Sometimes they do what's wrong, even though they know it's wrong. So it's not like they get off. It's just they're judged according to what they've been given. We get judged according to what we've been given. And, and that means we should take care how we judge others, um, that was the, the accusation at the beginning of chapter two. You who, who judge others, do you not judge yourself? We've got to be careful with that. But also we need to take care with how we judge ourselves. Um, and, and this is really a difficult balance because on the one side, we could fall into the error of saying, well, I haven't sinned in, in months. I must be really great. I'm doing fantastic. Look how good I am. Um, my experience has been whenever that happens, I wind up screwing up because I begin to rely on me. Apparently this is how I am now and I'll just rely on that. But we can get too high of a view of ourselves. The other side of this equation is we can have way too low of a view of ourselves. Um, the Bible does call us a worm. Uh, it says that we're all sinners, that, uh, that before God we are children of wrath. And so we can say, oh, that's, I'm just useless, worthless, I'm not worth anything. But don't forget, Jesus died for people like that. Um, that doesn't mean that they're infinitely worth, uh, worthy um, of who Jesus is, but it means that God did not assume you as of no worth. 
He said, you're worth what I, I assigned to you. I want you, therefore my son has died for you. Also, the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what if you hate yourself and you think you're horrible and you never do anything? Well, then you're going to treat your neighbor like that. So what we have to do is take care to judge ourselves rightly. And this really is what I, I think is humility, is to agree with God. And so what we have to do is we have to remind ourselves of God's righteous standard because that's the standard by which we'll be judged. We have to agree with God. We're not keeping it. We're not keeping it perfectly. And then agree with God in saying, but you have decided that you would save me. You have decided that you would send your son for me. And therefore, though I'm not perfect, I'm not useless either. And so we, we have to judge correctly. It's a delicate balance that we're in. And, and as Paul is going here and making his case, it gets, it's just gets harder and harder to say, well, I'm not totally useless. I'm not totally worthless. I'm not totally evil at every moment of every day. Um, but we need to have that accurate assessment of ourselves. So what Paul is reminding us of now is we're in desperate situation. We are in desperate straits. Where his gospel will go is salvation, which is necessary, is available. And, and that's where we're going to eventually get, but it's not going to be for another couple chapters. So please assess yourself honestly. Um, look at your life and say, this is bad. I shouldn't be doing that. I do this pretty well. But in the end, don't look at the things that you do pretty well and go and pat yourself on the back. Count that as the mercy of God, as the blessing of God. He is working in you these things. He's accomplishing in you these things. And so confess with him that those things are wrong. Agree with him those things are right and thank him for giving them to you. I think that's the, the direction that he's going with this. And so we'll pick up again next week and finish out chapter two and probably head into chapter three. Um, chapter, the next section begins with circumcision. And I just felt like that issue of circumcision was different from that moral code that we'd been talking about. And so we'll pick that up and, and introduce that because now we're going to ask, well, what about the Jew? Um, we've been dealing with the Gentiles quite a bit. Now, what about the Jew? What about the person who has had the revelation and, and the covenants and that? And so that's where we'll go next. Um, let's close in prayer now. Lord, I just I ask that you would give me an honest assessment of myself, of Lord, to not trust in the victories as if they came from me, but to recognize, Lord, that it's your grace at work in me, your Holy Spirit working and moving within me. And Lord, to see the sins that I commit not as negligible or, or indifferent or not important, the sins I commit in my body or in my heart or in my mind, but Lord, to see them as what they are, which is an offense against you. And to recognize, Lord, that between the two, that's, that's who I am. And that's where I'm at. And Lord, I pray that we would all be filled with the Holy Spirit to convict us of the wrong, to generate the right, and to, Lord, to lead us to faith in you. That salvation is available to everyone who believes. Uh, so, Lord, help us not count on our works, but count on you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.